You're listening to NASA in Silicon Valley, episode 38. Technology drives exploration. Now, that is particularly relevant to the relatively new small satellite platform, of which our guest today is Mark Murbach, who is the principal investigator for the TechEdSat, which stands for the Technology Education Satellite. This investigation uses small CubeSat spacecraft launched from the International Space Station to evaluate, demonstrate, and validate new technologies. Mark works with a wide range of groups uh, to build and launch small satellites, some from the scientific community and NASA itself, but many are high school and college students as well. We are on the ground floor of this up-and-coming technology that is making space more accessible to scientists and the public. Here is Mark Murbach. We always like to start this off with getting to know you a little bit. So okay. tell us a little bit about like how you came to Silicon Valley, how you ended up at NASA. Basically, I'm from uh, Washington State, um, okay. but I was raised in South America, in uh, Ecuador and Peru. My, for, my oh, folks wow. were in the Foreign Service. And then even as a kid, I remember the uh, there was a, a NASA installation that actually was, was part of the ground station. And I remember being enthralled by that. And, uh, I was very interested in science and engineering, and then um, uh, so eventually I was attracted to NASA space exploration, and then started uh, my career at NASA Ames. Been interested in thermodynamics, uh, very high-speed flight, reentry flight, planetary exploration, uh, mission design. I'm a hands-on guy, so yeah. um, to me it was important to go back to some of the beginning part of Na uh, NASA and NACA, the predecessor organization, so that we can actually build things, test things rapidly, yeah. and experiment, uh, experiment, and thus learn very quickly. Growing up in the Foreign Service, living in Ecuador, I'm sure, imagine you went to a bunch of international schools and working with different people. When you went to university, did you study engineering, or did you, like was it always centrally focused of like, man, I'm going to go work for NASA one day? Uh, I would say pretty much so, pretty much the <laughs> latter. Um, I was really interested in a science and engineering career, but I, but I'm I you know I'm very interested in um, world culture and uh, politics yeah. and history in particular. So um, and I do teach on the side. So my a oh, junk wow. professor at a local university and uh, my my poor victim students they they have <laughs> to learn a, a bit of space history, which I make relevant with calculation. And then, then they get it. It's it's yeah. a it's a neat way. It's a neat uh, platform with which to better kind of uh, illustrate these otherwise dry equations now come to life over a period of uh, decades. It's fun to do it that way. Well, it seems like a mix of the uh, the science of the math, the calculations, but then also it could tell you, you like to tinker and, uh, and play with the toys. Yeah. So it's almost like engineering and then the science. So were, were you always kind of dealing with both? I would say so. I think one uh, engenders advancement in the other. You know, the space program is very much like that. At first, we could barely target the moon, yeah. fail, failing number, numer numerous times. Uh, Mars also, like the Russians have had horrible luck at Mars. But uh, each time we go there, what we're studying comes in better and better focus. Yeah. Just like our, our Kepler instruments here at, at, yeah. at, uh, at NASA Ames, for decades we presumed that there were planets out there, but we, yeah. we were never really sure until we started seeing these. It's a plethora of them. It's wonderful. It's very, very exciting. Well, it's also fascinating because I remember even thinking of Kepler where that the pitch, the idea for that mission – it, you know, it failed. Like, like it didn't get approved. It went like a handful of times until, all right, this version is good to go. 
and then you make it happen. We, we learned a lot from Bill Baruki, who was the, the PI on that. And so uh, uh, many years ago, I was helping Bill on something that was an optical table, um, mm-hmm. optical bench on, on plywood, which, which is an oxymoron. But the, <laughs> the, 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 the ideas had to be tested somewhere. And then gradually and gradually, the CCD technology advanced. And I think after 18 or 20 years of, of proposing, finally, the combination of technologies mature. And all of a sudden, we have this marvelous, marvelous and inexpensive telescope that, uh, yeah. that uh, NASA provided it seems like a good analog for you know for Ames even as just a re- as a research center you know you try it you research you figure it out if it doesn't work go back to the drawing board do it again it all it's like it kind of helps Sometimes that going back to the drawing board, it helps drive that innovation, coming um, up with different ideas. It does. The, typically, uh, all these things advance by increment. And, yeah. and we see this very much even going back to the Wright brothers. Totally. And, and if we compare him to uh, Samuel Langley, um, mm-hmm. who had a lot of resources at his hand, he, he tried a couple of um, point designs with, uh, with a couple, some clever people, but basically dropped these things, you know, these steam-powered aerodromes into the Potomac in front of Congress, which is not a really good thing to do. The... The uh, Wright brothers, learning from Otto Lilienthal, they became hang glider pilots uh, at uh, mm-hmm. Kill Devil Hills in, uh, in North Carolina. North Carolina you know? yeah. So, so they, they're trying to take the risk out of it. But they later they learned, and as they learned aerodynamics very experimentally, incrementally, then they could add powered flight. They made they built their own twelve horsepower engine. But it was a, a series of incremental advances that they did, uh, it, which makes sense. And they built their own wind tunnels. And again, going back, you know, moving forward decades, let's say, you know, the, the, uh, the nanosatellites are something like this. We can now really access the space environment. We can test new sensors, new devices. Yeah. And in, in our case as well, um, new methods of, uh, of deorbiting objects using a parachute of all things. So we can actually parachute things off a space platform, which is also sounds counterintuitive as well. Yeah, and looking at some of the stuff that you're working on now, these small sats or, you know, the smaller scale missions, were you always working on that when you first came to NASA or did it eventually kind of steer that towards that path? So th- this was a fairly opportunistic dear friend and colleague of mine um, came up with the idea of this containerized cargo um, okay. um, or containerized risk as I, as I like to put it. And so in inside these containers, we can put these, these nanosatellites and what it does is it minimizes the risk to the mother launch vehicle, okay. which is huge. By standardizing these shapes and the containers, it enabled you know dozens uh, of these, these nanosatellites to be built, at which meant that now academia and also industry and NASA have access to being able to do these rapid and, and quick experiments. And it's a huge learning opportunity as well. Now we can get people early on in their careers yeah. to actually tinker, to think about how to do things. And so our group is kind of a small skunk works group and we have a lot of students, hence the moniker Tech EdSat, Tech uh, Education Satellite, which we're, we're very true to. So we have a lot of uh, interns, young professionals that uh, actually early in their career, they get a chance to take risk, build it, learn project management at the scale and turn things around very rapidly. And it's, it's thrilling. Yeah, maybe going a little bit more into that. So, tech ed satellite. What exactly? That's a program, and the whole purpose is to get students in to start making these small sats. Uh, that's correct, and yeah. and and us too. Uh, so yeah. it's you know joint because you know we uh, we're learning as we go forth as well. We polish what we're doing, but we're also being uh, able to advance our own uh, experiments as well. So it's a nice environment, a nice mm-hmm. learning platform for all involved. 
So, you know, it, so it's uh, incremental advancement, as, as I was pointing to earlier. And a lot of this stuff is, you know, stuff you get off the shelf, or it's it's accessible. It is. What I'm holding in front of you right now is take us <laughs> actually number seven, which is a, a two-unit size or a two-liter size. And you can see the relative simplicity. We, uh, we now can fill these with different kind of experiments. We've standardized some elements of it. We've um, been able to really advance communicating to these. Um, yeah. So inadvertently, uh, some of our most interesting experiments have been communication experiments. And now we use a satellite network to actually we, uh, send email commands to our satellites. Uh, so oh, we're wow. the, we the first uh, uh, email-commanded satellite. And so for folks who are listening, what we're sitting at looking at in front of us, and we can link to different uh, photos Mm -hmm. from the transcript and from the podcast, is like a small, like a 10 by 10 centimeter, like, cube or 10 by 10 by 10 cube, but we got one that looks like just two of them stacked on top of each other. It's about the size of what, maybe like half of a loaf of bread, give or take, depending yeah. on how big your bread is. <laughs> yeah. It's, so it is that. So it's, uh, each unit of a, of a nanosatellite is a liter, 10 by 10 by 10 centimeters, as you say. But now we, with our extrusion, we can make these, uh, what you're looking at is the two liter, and okay. we typically make three liter satellites. We, we're oh, now okay. we're designing a six liter satellite, so it's oh, longer really? yet. Sure. This is a standardized size and how does that having that standardization help to build this community and so it's huge so the the cross section is uh, 10 by 10 centimeters and we can make these long so our our colleagues in the industry now are able to launch uh, six or seven units per launch tube mm-hmm. so therefore you can pack more instrumentation um, different kind of sensors maybe bigger optics but what that does is because it fits in these launch tubes these launch yeah. tubes then have been taken to very rigorous safety. Um, any risk is contained within those launch tubes, those those uh, those ejectors. And where do those? Where are those? Is that up on the International Space Station that they're getting launched from? That's correct. Now um, it's become common now that we can launch these off different launch vehicles as well independently. Um, our set actually is taken up as cargo to the space station and processed internally. And then it goes outside on the Japanese. Uh, module uh, arm, the uh, okay. the Jim RMS, and then there are typically eight launch tubes on this arm, and then we populate uh, part of one launch tube. And so, for example, we can get uh, 48 units or 48 liters per airlock cycle, which is great. Oh, wow. So it's pretty cool. And I guess the idea is, typically as we're sending equipment up to the space station, then this isn't necessarily the primary payload, but it's kind of hitching a ride, filling in the gaps of stuff that's already going up like there's space so might as well fill absolutely we're hitchhikers yeah you know, nice. these are these are rides of opportunity in fact that's how, how it usually works so this to you we were approached as hey we have an empty space to you are you interested and you know <laughs> and we you know that in the evening we started to lay out and started to go forth with the design and now you have it in front of you we did that in a very short order and so kind of like if you think of the schoolhouse rock how a bill becomes a law <laughs> how how a small sack gets into the sky uh-huh. i mean it basically comes from a conception and idea from a student or from a researcher mm-hmm. or from NASA or for anyone else they come up with this they build it design it gets into a rocket goes up gets launched does what it needs to do and comes back is that but, but pretty much it will burn up on the way down yeah the caveat but um, uh, but we do adhere to the tried and true manner of uh, coffee stained <laughs> napkins nice uh, so <laughs> that's uh, usually where it starts and then we lay it out and you know block diagrams and then um, advance. Um, and so we have a particular approach to the structure. So the structure that you see here is, mm-hmm. is a square aluminum tube that we can cut. So we don't have to, it's very easy for us to make the structure and then focus on, on what's inside. You mentioned earlier, um, yes, a lot of the 
the um, the microprocessors that we use are maker type microprocessors. Yeah. So we use um, Arduino uh, processors and their family, which are very available, and also the uh, Intel Edison processor will okay. be the first to fly that. So these components are fairly inexpensive. We do have to be very careful because if they get knocked on the head uh, with a galactic cosmic ray event, then they will reset themselves. We've seen this a couple of times, but the whole idea is we don't have to use uh, you know radiation hardened uh, microprocessors or components. Our missions are of short duration, uh, so yeah. if, we, if we're cocked in the head, and even if we lose a satellite, which we have not yet, it's not the end of the world. It's not the end of the world. It's not, it has not been a big investment. It's not like a multi-million-dollar taxpayer-funded endeavor. All. This is a you can you can kind of get a little bit more risky or a little, try a little bit more. In, in fact, spread we, your wings a little. Absolutely, what we've been promoting is to to do these a few times ahead of the bigger satellites, and we can actually t- take the risk out of out, oh, yeah. out of the bigger satellites or the or the interplanetary missions. And one of our interests also is to take these and and uh, land a couple of versions of this on the surface of Mars. Okay. So, so, so now taking the idea of a nanosatellite and actually uh, putting it on the surface of Mars is of interest. You can do a lot of very, very interesting things in, in, um, in two or three liters of volume. Um, so we, we propose that as well. And so looking at some of these, some of the small sats, um, what are the typical applications that you'd see for space or even for Earth? Perhaps a couple of different levels. One, one is uh, the, the pure experiment, basically taking things up there to try out new communication systems, new sensors, mm-hmm. um, new paradigms. And so it's, a, it's an active laboratory for us and for a lot of other people. Now, um, actually, some of our former associates and interns have actually gone off and spun off companies. Oh, wow. And uh, now they're flying you know, f- uh, fleets of, of these satellites, um, usually with optics. Uh, so we're looking at uh, some imagery on demand at different levels of resolution. So that's become very popular. Um, so, so remote sensing has is, is become uh, a big deal. And as we make progress with the, the communication element of it and can get more and more data down per, per small satellite, then we can look at what's called multispectral imaging as well. That okay. requires much, much more data. It's all about data and science, right? Yeah. So, so there are very practical commercial uh, and sensing capabilities that are coming out from this, this very modest size. And it seems like a big advantage of, well, at least you think of a large satellite that's looking at the Earth or at another planet and it's focusing on one very expensive sensor looking at one part, but with these small sats, you could, you know, as you said, like almost like a fleet or, you know, a hive of them that are getting tons of data points over a larger space. Correct. So that's also an experiment. So NASA Ames, we've developed um, a project called Nodes, uh, where we're trying to understand that a little bit better um, and perhaps be able to um, have the, you know, the attitude control so you can do a lot of other very interesting things. Uh, that's still the experimental realm, but then eventually this will be matured and harvested for mm-hmm. maybe small satellites. So we're going to see a, an abundance of small communication and remote sensing satellites in um, medium low Earth orbit. And what, what's the typical life cycle for this? Like It's like a year, a couple months? So, so the good months. thing about these, if you launch something from the space station, typically the durations are about six months. And, okay. and that's about right because the last thing we want to do is to contribute to space debris, yeah. space junk. And so the nice thing about these orbits from the space station is that they're, uh, they can be very risky. Sometimes we've seen a lot of things that don't work, don't work the first time, but that's okay. They get washed out after a few months, and that's perfect. And then they can try it again. So, in fact, um, you know, stepping back, yeah. what I didn't mention is before I worked with the CubeSat paradigm that we were, NASA has a very active uh, program in suborbital uh, rockets. 
Okay. And so we fly 20 to 30 per year from the NASA Wallops facility. And I've, I've built a numer, numerous experiments on, on those platforms. Those are short duration. Maybe you get, you know, uh, five minutes, 10 minutes of a microgravity or time above the sentient atmosphere. What the nanosatellite has done is really then taking this concept and now, hey, instead of just a few minutes, we can uh, extend this to much, much longer mm-hmm. time. It's smaller. Now we know aperture sizes have to be 10 by 10 centimeters, but you can do a lot of good stuff with it. So, um, so two things. One is a natural, I think, growth from the suborbital program that was yeah. that, that was that risky part of small projects, and then um, and then actually, it's still viable that we still do. I still have an active interest in active uh, experiments on rockets because we want to see those advanced. And mm-hmm. actually, we even have a project where we were looking at avionics sized about the size of this satellite. Uh, you know, one or two liters. And then that actually is a cheap avionics set to control suborbital rockets or orbital rockets. And so we, we, said, we see that as well. So that, that's an exciting yeah. potential application. And so, and then even thinking of the cube set, or not a cube, it's a rectangle set. <laughs> it's a re- rectangular set, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, sitting in front of us. Um, you know, normally the end of that life cycle is it's done its job. Now it's burning up in the atmosphere, you know, just evaporates on its way coming back in. But you're working on ways to prevent uh, that, the, the, to that, actually have like a break or a parachute or correct. how. So um, uh, our longer term ambition is to look at things like a sample return from orbiting platforms or, or manufacturing depots or, or space stations. Um, but to do that, at first, we want to be able to control the deorbit part of it and not necessarily use uh, the typical rocket propulsion, which can do, but it turns out it's a lot more complicated. If we can do this with a simple drag device, then um, and do it accurately. So our next experiment, we now can, like the Wright brothers, in a, in a loose sense, we can warp the wing, we can warp the the parachute, so that we can target a point at the top of the atmosphere in preparation for our future experiments. That would we would actually try to get these two go all the way down and eventually recover them. But at, at the present, we have to promise everything's going to burn up because yes. we, you know, we want to be good citizens. And, yes, we don't want to put and, more and, trash and, up in space. Right, or, or drop things uh, where, where they're not supposed to be. Um, in fact, on this satellite right here that in front of you, we uh, actually have an ablator on the front end. So this white piece that you see here is, is, is an ablator. Okay, so an ablator that, is? Um, so it's a heat shield that, okay. uh, that basically um, with a you know, high rate of heat transfer starts to, in this case, uh, sublime and start to erode away, but protecting the satellite behind it. Okay. And so we do this incrementally. Um, this will burn up, but it will burn up deeper and deeper. Okay. So in our in our successive experiments, and again incrementally, we will yeah. probe and go deeper and deeper and deeper. Yes. Yeah, so that in, in a couple satellites from now, we would like to actually have the thing touch the ground. And so it's those baby steps of first, let's like see if we can control where this thing burns up as they come in, see how long it takes to burn up, and then eventually down the road, how can we actually recover? Exactly. And bring it back. Right. We're, but we're, with control and understanding. But with control. So, um, so these next couple of experiments are all about um, the what we call the exobreak, our parachute, and controlling it, and then uh, uh, convincing people that we can we know what we're doing. We can target it. We can um, actually fly through the thermal sphere, which has a variable density. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's, it's it's a lot of fun. Actually, this next flight will be really, really cool because uh, we'll have our operations uh, meetings every day and um, talk about the space weather, literally, which <laughs> will tell us the, the thickness of the atmosphere and, and yeah. whether or not we need to change the parachute. So we will steer it in a sense that we have a, a brake pedal and then we run trajectory simulation to see if we are going to hit our target or not. So it's, it's going to be a lot of fun. So is that the main thing if you're looking – 
you know, a couple of years in the future, you know, five years, even 10 years. Um, what do you see for, for these small sats? Where, where are you hoping that they're going to eventually go? I, I think, again, is a platform. Who knows what people will come up with, yeah. uh, what, both new experiments and, and maybe new industries. Um, I think eventually on-orbit manufacturing, we see that there are some real promising signs. We've seen it discussed for, for many, many years, but also having the practicality of, of having something in orbit and be able to retrieve it is going to be important. Yeah. Um, so there'll, there'll be an experimental phase at first. But then actually taking these things off as we send um, ships off to uh, to Mars, for example, or other planets, to be able to deploy um, smaller sets and get in academia and students involved in these as a subset, as a safe subset of the larger mother craft is going to be important. So if we can, for example, take these things as we're interested in put, putting them on Mars mm-hmm. and then doing unique Mars climatology and Mars experiments, we're looking at um, um, miniaturizations of these of this, uh, mineralogy experiments that we've been able to perform, some actually very good work here at NASA Ames. So we can ex- extend that concept in low-Earth orbit Again, with academia yeah. and containing the risk to the mother craft and put these things on Mars. And then uh, Mars, they talk to the mothership. The mothership talks back to Earth. And then we can close the communication link that way. Cool. So for folks who are listening who want to find out more about some of the work that you're doing, more about the TechEdSats, best place to go, nasa.gov? Yes. And uh, we mm-hmm. also have a TechEdSat w- uh, website. So if you also search TechEdSat, uh, you'll no doubt find us. Excellent. We can add that to the show notes so that people can find it. So, But also, if people are listening um, in a faster, easier way, if you have questions for Mark, uh, we're on Twitter, at NASA Ames, and we're using the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley. So feel free to send Mark any questions. We'll loop him in. <laughs> Be more than happy to answer. So, but, uh, and thank you very much for inviting me, and thank you all for your very kind interest. We're looking forward to the next uh, couple of very exciting missions. Well, I, I can tell this is be, be the first of many uh, because the, this stuff is just growing like crazy. It's, it's just fascinating. So We're having fun. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.